Hey there! Are you tired of waiting for the next episode of It's Probably Not Aliens? Well, we've got some good news for you. On Nebula, our streaming service, you can get access to all our episodes a week early. That's right, you'll never have to wait again to hear Scott and I debunk the latest ancient astronaut theory or get a movie fact wrong. But that's not all. Nebula is home to dozens of content creators we know you like, so you can find all your favorites in one place. Plus, we post content on there that you won't find anywhere else. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and listen to the next episode right after this one. Have a cold open that I think we could do if you want to. Sure. I I did not have one. All right. Let me know if you can hear this. <gasps> it's here. We got it. It's here. I got my soundboard. It was always here. I just couldn't figure out how to get it to work. And now I got it to work, baby. This is part of the natural life cycle of every podcast. And there's always the time when the the soundboard arrives and there is there is like a, um, what's it called? It's like a hype cycle. It's gonna, Scott's <laughs> going to get really excited about it, and then everyone's going to get really annoyed, and then really it's going to go down for a while. And Super then he's going to find a responsible amount of weird sounds to add to things. Thank you. I'm excited for that progression of our show. Uh, I thought I could celebrate this momentous occasion by doing a game that I've been forgetting that I wanted to do for the last month or two. Isaac, will introduce you properly in a little bit, but you are here currently if you would like to participate in this game as well. It's a very simple game that I like to call tentatively The Grays versus Grays. Interesting. Yeah. So basically, Ancient Aliens, the TV show, has been going on for 19 seasons. It's currently airing its 19th season. You know what else is currently airing its 19th season? Grey's Anatomy. ABC drama. One of Scott's favorite shows. <laughs> ABC medical drama Grey's Anatomy. So I want to just play this game very very, very occasionally as we get news, because I want to know which show will last longer. Uh, Let's take let's take bets right now. One of them, one of these shows was renewed recently. So there's hope that it might outlive the other. But we don't know if the other one's been canceled yet. Tristan, which show do you think is going to outlive the other? Ancient Aliens Um, or Grey's Anatomy? I'm going to say that because Shonda Rhimes is currently on. On like doing like several other shows now. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that it's going to be Ancient Aliens because Ancient Aliens uh, can be is typically ri- an episode of Ancient Aliens is typically written with the first two results of Google and mm-hmm, mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm. costs like no money. And with that has huge numbers and just got renewed for a movie or just got a movie uh, announced. So I'm thinking that Ancient Aliens isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It's one of the like major load bearing pins of the History Channel right now, while Grey's Anatomy is like mainly held up by Shonda Rhimes is like writing mm-hmm. style and she's doing uh, Bridgerton and doing other stuff. What's Barely, that not show? even involved. Shonda Rhimes
Grimes is not even involved in Grey's Anatomy other than just yeah. being an executive producer at the moment. So it seems like its best years are past. Uh, oh, it's, its best years are long past, Tristan. Let me tell you that much. <laughs> so you're saying Ancient Aliens is going to outlive Grey's Anatomy. Interesting, interesting. Uh, Isaac Arthur, as I said, we'll introduce you properly in a little bit. Yeah, you're not a, say, as far I, as I know, you're not a Grey's Anatomy expert, but if I'm wrong... No, no. I, I, I mean, I, when it came to medical shows, I tend to watch that. I'm not a huge fan in general, but like House MD was the one I tended to watch. Oh, sure. Um, oh, sure. It, it was a greatly, you know, well-produced show, good cast. And yet after, after about season six, it was really, mm-hmm. it felt like it had jumped the shark. I think they even did an episode that joked about that. Um, but, you, you know, your creative talent wants to move on. You know, shows will just keep going on forever and day. Um, like, um, God, this or that soap opera has been on for 40 years or that news program. But uh, generally speaking, like The Simpsons, were they on season 30-something now? Million? Yeah, it's, yeah I, I love that show going up. But after like season, I think it was season 15, I just was I'm done. <laughs> One thing I got to say about The Simpsons, and um, this is a this is a fact. When The Simpsons aired, first aired, when its pilot came out, I was the same age as Maggie. And I am now quickly approaching Homer's age. And that show's hmm. going to go off the air when I'm grandpa's age. That's my... <laughs> There you go. When the cast all dies off. But I think actually they've been slowly replacing a lot of the characters in movie source too. But I think, you know, with, with that one, it's what they call that flanderization effect that goes on. I suspect you probably find that in the, a lot of the other shows we've been on a long time too, where characters get introduced and become more and more of an extreme stereotype of whatever they wore originally. Mm-hmm. Like, Homer was not dumb when the show started. I, I remember the f- seeing him on the old, um, oh God, what was it called? It was a kind of a psychology-based uh, skit show that they'd had as, as these little yes. low-quality cartoons. And uh, it, it was not, you know, Homer noticeably got dumb with seasons went on. Bolt noticeably got dumb with seasons mm-hmm. went on. And I think they kind of passed that out. It's what, for me, killed the show a little bit is the characters were just too arch-stereotypy. And uh, that happens a lot of the other ones, too. The characters have some trait they're known for and just keeps getting more extreme with time. Don't avoid my question, my initial question. <laughs> Ancient Aliens or Grey's Anatomy? I would Anatomy. say Ancient Aliens just because like, you don't really need to have a recurring fictional storyline that someone's got to keep writing or acting. Ancient Aliens is the concept of has this you know very fascinating idea that's been stuck in people's heads for at least as long as Chariots of Fire has been out and probably longer. There are so many stories based off of that specific concept that mm-hmm. you can keep doing it. Like, when is Shakespeare going to go off? Hey, oh, you know, when are they going to stop yeah, doing Yeah, when are we going to cancel Shakespeare? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's such a... It's, oh, when's Tolkien going to get old? Yeah. So, Ancient Aliens is a concept... As much as I, I don't agree with it as an actual walking real idea is fictionally fascinating. It's like its own genre. So right. the show analyzing it, it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. All right. All right. So here's what I will say. First and foremost, I would like to preface this with the context that the show Grey's Anatomy is named after the titular character Meredith Grey. Mm-hmm. That actor has been one of one of three actors that has been in the whole from season one to mm-hmm. current season. She has now left the show. <laughs> the main character oh, man. <laughs> has now left the show this season. Well, the BBC had a solution to this in one of their shows back in the 60s, and it has mm-hmm. worked out really well for them. Well, they, so if Meredith Grey regenerates too. into yeah. a new actor. Meredith's uh, like seven. Mm-hmm. Blake didn't even appear. They're two seasons in. Blake disappears to get to the one beyond anymore. And Blake seven went on for two much actually better seasons after that. That he's got another titular character. He's gone. That being said, the show that has currently been renewed for season twenty is Grey's Anatomy. Ancient (laughs) Aliens is yet to be renewed for season twenty. I will keep everyone updated. Uh, oh, fun. I'll bring this game back as soon as we get more news. And pr- this might go on forever. Who knows? 
And so, oh, you know what I should have done before? I'm going to, I should have, I should have done a drum roll before I revealed that. Oh, wow. Okay. Grey's Anatomy is what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> I'm so are, sorry. I am this? so sorry, audience. I know this is this is a, this is a hard time for all podcasts, as yep. we all know. Um, yep, yep, yep. Thank you for indulging me. Um, hey, this is a podcast, by the way. This is a podcast called "It's Probably Not Aliens," where we look into the show "Ancient Aliens" and other ancient astronaut uh, theory, and uh, we look into the history and the science sometimes behind their yeah. claims and learn about real world uh, people, places, things concepts and uh i'm the host of this show that knows nothing except for how to work a soundboard now my <laughs> name is scott nicewander and this is my job forever and i love I it i'm scott nicewander the chimpanzee with the sound button that's me <laughs> my name is tristan johnson and typically i'm the person who knows and does the i mean i did do the research for this one but as uh, as 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 we had last week uh we talked about uh some of the science behind the stuff in episode uh one of season two of ancient aliens and we had isaac arthur here uh come and talk to us and we we got so much great stuff about quantum teleportation that we ran out of time and didn't even get to the entire second conversation about wormholes wormholes so luckily isaac was kind enough to give us two weeks of his time yes he's back you you're back i'm glad to be back too it's a fun topic yeah. Yeah. So 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 today today we're talking about wormholes and I'm sure that um in in ancient aliens the claim is that these stargates could be places of teleportation or they could be wormholes. Those are the only two logical things that they could be. Um mm-hmm. and I feel like both of them are staples of the science fiction genre. So they're very uh uh recognizable. Worm so quantum teleportation or teleportation in general is one of those things that has been verified to happen and wormholes are one of those things that I was very very interested to find out um despite how taken for granted they are of existing we don't actually know if they exist or if they are physically possible yet um yeah. Yeah. and that i would was- say the the loose consensus in physics is that they don't but but that they mm. could and and so mm. a lot of that came back to the idea of could they be primordial wormholes that existed from the very earliest moment after the big bang but there is one of those ones where until we understand how spooky action at distance works in quantum, until we understand better how, where the dark energy stuff is coming from, we really can't say no wormholes. And then there's always a question of where is all that energy flowing in from and how is it doing it? So one example of a one-way wormhole, for instance, might be dark energy just being like, imagine there's a bathtub and we are in the universe beneath that and the bathtub drains into us. And that's dark energy. That might be through a wormhole, but you can't go back up the one the way. Take our celestial broom handle and start banging on the ceiling and get them to cut yeah. it out. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> very, very interesting because like, um, I mean, if that, if there's ever any updates on that, by the way, if, if you by any chance have an answer to solve all these problems, first of all, um, congratulations, because you probably have seven Nobel prizes at this point. Um, yeah. And you basically, and also congratulations because, um, apparently this is that you're talking about like the whole, how do you marry, uh, you know, um, Einsteinian physics and quantum mechanics. And if you can solve that, uh, as far as I can tell, the, the consensus is if you could do that, you have solved physics. You have, you're you done. Yeah. You you completed physics. Physics is done We're after we figured that one out. Also, well, just thanks for listening to the show. Wild yeah. that you would be yeah, yeah. 
when you go to Stockholm and become famous for all time, remember us fondly. <laughs> we yeah. forge you on. <laughs> yeah, mention, so maybe this is, mention us. Get us some. Get us some advertising <laughs> while you're there. Thanks. It's it's interesting because basically what we're at right now is. Um, and the way that I, I didn't even realize until we approached it, but basically teleportation and wormholes are basically representing the way that you can do instantaneous travel uh, with the two genders of physics. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> because like the last one was basically the quantum mechanics approach, and now we're going to do the you know General relativity. relativity approach, yeah. Yeah. Mm, um, what are the odds? There's a third one. Is there a third one? I a hope third not. <laughs> That we haven't we found a new physics yet. Yeah, someone's going to find out that um, someone's going to solve the the sort of Einsteinian and quantum mechanics. Uh, they're going to make quantum gravity. I think is the shorthand for it work, and mm. then they're going to find a new physics that we've never even heard of. New physics <laughs> just dropped. Let's yeah, get on we'll have it. To find, we'll have to find a new way to do sci-fi with all of those, too. It's had been done a few. I mean, it's we, physics is not a field that really makes a vast amount of progress. And in like the last century, where we basically had quantum add to it and otherwise not that much, it's slow. Like, well, there's a new theory every year. Well, not really. It, it's very slow progress, but it's been moving forward a lot. It doesn't get disproven a lot. But like a century and a half ago, they didn't have relativity. They didn't have quantum. And they were formerly of the opinion that a lot of people were doing magic tricks were somehow moving stuff through a fourth dimension. And then ironically, mm-hmm. a lot of that basic, very wrong uh, and disbunked stuff came in very handy later on for trying to look at some of the stuff for quantum. But mm. um, you know, with, with wormholes, with gravity, we, we could already have some matching up with them. For instance, um, oh, good God, why have I still forgotten his name? Uh, he does the EPER. E was EPR theory, though, very famous physicist, Leonard Susskind. And um, his idea there is that electrons might actually be black holes, naked singularities, anyway, and that they Whoa. are connected to each other as wormholes, and that's how they can send their information quicker. Okay. I'm going to say a fun fact, and I'm realizing that there's like maybe a 60% chance that this fun fact I probably heard on a science fiction with Isaac Arthur or science and science fiction. And uh, so um, there was this idea that if you were to look at the laws of physics, that the laws of physics, if you were to like, like, cause it's sort of like a reaction to the idea of like that creationists would say that like, Oh, it looks like the universe, like all the laws of physics were designed to make life specifically. And it's like, well, if you really look at it, it looks like the laws of physics were designed to make black holes. And, yeah. and if universes exist inside black holes, then there's sort of like a Darwinian evolution where like most universes are going to be more and more optimized for making more black holes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That is um, very much oh. something that Penrose and Suskin have both suggested too, is this idea that you're engaged in basically black hole forming. And one of the neat things about that is that you can actually potentially use black holes as a power source or a basis for matter. So in, in a way, you could actually have a universe out there where life was formed from black holes itself as with their power plant and basic constructive molecule. And those would be some very super ultra slow life forms. But uh, if it doesn't matter, that's all there is. And it's an infinitely long universe. So uh, there's also the idea that maybe black holes create other black holes that make big bangs, for instance. And that's, I mean, the evidence to back those up is very minimal. It's a mathematical solution, but there's nothing working against either. We haven't got much better either. So. Yeah. In, in a nonfiction piece of work I found that's called um, the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th Edition Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> if you put a bag of holding inside another bag of holding, uh, it sends everything inside to the astral plane and causes like a sort of like thing. So it's, I imagine it's basically like putting a bag of holding in another bag of holding. Yeah. I'm pretty sure back in like second ed, you had to roll the random table to see where you dumped off. I was like the abyss of the astral plane, but I think I used that reference one time too for like what happens if you put a warm hole inside another warm hole and uh actually it's not a warping reality episode next next month but um 
you know, the idea that it's going to explode into that in Babylon 5, you open up a stargate inside another stargate, or what do they call it, a hyperspace jump portal, it would blow up. They called it the bonehead maneuver. Oh. Um, <laughs> they used it one time <laughs> in the show. So this is a magnificent but incredibly expensive weapon because it basically required blowing up these. It would yeah. be like blowing up the, the Golden Gate Bridge to, to delay an enemy behind you. Mm. Uh, something you want to use an advisable military strategy to launch them. But um, I think there is that notion that if you open up you know, something paradoxical inside something else is kind of paradoxical, you're going to get a bigger paradox. <laughs> I um I remember that um to to it there are some very uh there's some very enterprising Dungeons and Dragons players in the world mm-hmm. and one of the ones I remembered is uh, an engineer designing an arrow that the tip has inside of it a capsule where you have two micro bags of holding and when the arrow impacts it crumples and the two bags of holding shove themselves into each other and basically <laughs> cause like oh my a, God. a portal reaction thing anyways um according to uh SFIA with Isaac Arthur um worm Wormholes are not us, uh, are basically hmm. what are they? They're, there's what two different types holes? of wormholes ones that you can't transfer uh transverse through and ones that you can transverse through but in order to do to make a wormhole transversible i.e to be able to open up uh one of the swiss cheese holes in space to put anything through it you basically need exotic matter and you've talked about exotic matter several times on this show have you been on here isaac but basically yeah. they're types of matter that make sense mathematically but haven't been seen in this weird place called reality where mathematicians f- loathe to tread. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, like you don't necessarily have to use negative matter to do a wormhole. You could use negative energy. And I think we talked last time, there's, there is some basis for the possibility of that. But the idea there is you're probably not going to do a negative energy portal inside this universe. That's the sort of thing that might be one of those, let's poke a hole into another universe approaches, which, um, you know, if you've seen the movie Event Horizon, does not always necessarily go out the way one would hope it would. Um, but, um, there's a, uh, a real option possibly that you might actually be like doing one horse between here and there, Alpha Centauri and Earth. That one doesn't really seem to be very well set up because it forced issues that whole time travel causality issue too. Mm-hmm. But doing them to other universes actually seems reasonably plausible. And we might actually have evidence of those. That might be what dark energy or the big bang was. Um, and there are the occasional phenomena where you might say, well, maybe this is an example of that too. Though we don't have anything that we'd say is an active, absorbable phenomena. These things, that's what quasars might be, for instance, big white holes. They are not. But if we see these things pop up, and there's always the option that there is these non-transversible or, or maybe transversible ones to other universes. Trying to have ones inside this universe from point A to point B here, those would seem to be limited to either the non-transversible or to that really trivial case of, you know, sending the one piece of information, I'm up or I'm down, that an electron might spend if it was entangled. Uh, that spooky action at a distance. It really doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for any, you know, Deep Space Nine style wormhole, you know, uh, back and forth between the gamma quadrant. You know, mm. so does that does that mean that the uh, the prophets are made of exotic matter? Basically, I thought they made a bad storytelling. I I, I love that <laughs> show, but I, I found the the uh, you know not the the Bajoran part. It was wonderful. That was a fascinating. You know, here's this actual alien culture we dip into a lot. But the I found the prophets themselves inside the wormhole just be almost always very badly written. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, so we should probably go back and and also um, introduce the idea time. of wormholes to everybody <laughs> yeah. outside of in their actual existence, not in like D Space Nine sense. But um, basically, here's here's the here's the rough bit about how it works. So Albert Einstein, uh, mm-hmm. you might have heard of him. Physics e equals mc squared, general relativity, generally known for doing cool stuff um, with math. He was able. He was really yeah. good with numbers. Um, so huge. Einstein, 
Einstein, this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Einstein develops this entire, uh, like this entire theory of physics that basically, uh, defines most of how we understand non quantum mechanics physics today, um, Mm. with some caveats. But one of the things that he did is that on paper, purely mathematically, he came to the conclusion that a hypothetical object should exist where if there is matter at a dense enough scale that it would essentially warp the, um, fabric of space time because space is space time is uh, it's it, it sort of is a material and isn't but basically if uh, matter is concentrated enough you can sort of bend it or warp it and that yeah. warping is kind of what we experience as gravity if i'm not wrong on that uh but when it comes to he he speculated that if you could have uh, enough matter in one place that it would basically cause this um this warping effect to become so strong that not even light could escape it and then years later i believe after he was dead we confirmed that they exist and we call them black holes so there is a precedent of einstein's physics on purely numbers predicting a thing that actually turned out to be real wormholes are another such thing that he predicted it's um they they typically the scientific name for a wormhole is a uh an einstein Einstein bridge i know that uh and so mathematically they should exist under the way einstein understood physics to work the problem though is that unlike black holes we have yet to observe one in or or create one in reality like we i think we've created micro singularities in like um cern because uh, we're supposed to oh wait we haven't yet because we haven't destroyed the world yet if i remember that was um, <laughs> as soon as the entire earth like crumbles like a piece of tinfoil then we know that cern did the thing but um, all right keep an eye but, out uh, but uh, how how my, how am i batting on there isaac on uh the, the uh, general idea of how's our boy? okay well there, there's a few bits on there that I, I would say they're not wrong they're more like what's gotten caught up in in, in modern history for it and kind of um like the idea that light couldn't escape from very big objects that predates einstein as soon as we figured out what the speed of light actually was we were able to determine there would be there could be objects big enough that light wouldn't be able to escape them mm-hmm. and that, that's just a kind of a classic solution there that they might have event horizons was a bit newer the other aspect of that is the Einstein-Rosen bridge is, is kind of a, a misnomer. Um, at the time, what, what Einstein and uh, Nathan Rosen, the, who was probably doing just as much as Einstein was, were working on was how to do that quantum gravity thing, basically. How do I do this gravity or this general relativity stuff down at the elementary particle scale? And that's where they kind of bumped into that solution, that math solution that was hitting that singularity that people later on extended, like um, like Wheeler and a few others in the 60s. Uh, you know, this is... Einstein did this work in the late 30s, just for World War II. And then post-World War II in the 60s, they started having time for more of this theory, and they got a little bit more approved. And that's when they started saying, wait, if we take this very basic quantum-level event and we raise it up to uh, uh, the big, the macroscopic scale, what does that look like? And that's when we start seeing real discussion of black horse coming up and real discussion of, of the wormhole option coming up. So it kind of got slapped with the name Einstein-Rosen Bridge, but that's mostly from the uh, the EPR paradox, of which the E and the R are Einstein of Rosen, and I cannot remember the other one's name, the P, I don't want to say Pulaski, but that's probably not quite right. Dr. Uh, Pulaski from Star yeah. Trek Next Generation. Yeah, that's actually just popped in my mm-hmm. head, too. It's not that. It, it's not that. It's, I think I want to say it's pod something, but whatever the case is, the EPR paradox was really more focused on this apparent paradox that you got at that, that scale, and so the name kind of stuck as the Einstein-Rosen bridge. Um, let's see. So in, in many ways, it gets credit to Einstein, not unjustly, but it was more like he put that little basic question in there, and then people expand on that a, a generation down the road to start coming up with solutions. 
And the wormhole one is what you should call the uh, maximally extended solution for that. And that's also where you get this, the Schwarzschild calculations that were what gave us the real black hole idea in more detail. So I said one of those things, because like the Fumi paradox, it's it's not that Fumi didn't talk about aliens at all. It's more that he gave a throwaway line that people contemplated about. And a generation later, they named it after him when they, they discussed it more. So, um, mm. yeah, that's kind of the idea there was the idea that for the get-go was this is not possible. You know, this is, and, and that's basically what Einstein was saying is this solution has got to be wrong, right? That mm-hmm. was the whole, this is wrong. What are we missing here? And somebody came down 23 years later and said, well, maybe it isn't. It probably is, but maybe it wouldn't be. And, and that is the entire discussion there afterwards. I just recall Einstein hating quantum mechanics. He's the person who everybody hates spooky quantum. action yeah. at distance, yeah. isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone hates it. We yeah, everybody hate hates it. quantum. <laughs> Can I give you a fun comic book fact about Einstein Rosenbridge? Uh, this is my, this is my, expertise i talk i know about comics and superheroes and stuff um when they were making the first thor movie they wanted to find a scientific explanation or like a scientific term to use for the bifrost for the rainbow bridge because like well first of all rainbow bridge sounds silly and comic booky but it's it's a mythological thing so they called it the bifrost which is also whatever comes from it too but for the earth side of things they wanted to find uh, an explanation for it and their first approach was calling it a wormhole but the i guess whoever was writing it or, or whoever someone said like that seems too 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 like fake i guess like wormhole like it's just sort of like that doesn't feel like a real scientific thing wormhole <laughs> and so what they did instead was uh they referred to it as an uh as an einstein rosen bridge but if you notice in the movie so like the 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 older dr selvig calls it an einstein rosen bridge but then they use uh natalie portman's character to uh jane to say that uh she interrupts and is like it's a wormhole like basically they use they use both terms and i think it's clever that they that they have her say it's a wormhole because it's like her way of being of trying to like make it easier to understand and like show that she's knowledgeable about the subject in a way that she can make it easy to understand oh yeah so this happens so often in sci-fi too like they'll, mm-hmm. they'll just they'll use one of the sci-fi tomes from out of science and then describe a different phenomena that also has its own term mm-hmm. so like um well event horizon would be one of those examples they, they're talking about wormholes and they, they they actually present the case of wormhole and explain it and then the drive is actually explained to actually be a hyperspace trump drive instead to a different universe or um, mm. oh, was it Dune? I uh, why well, I'm thinking of Dune. The guy who played uh, the order scientist that played uh, the the Baron in the new Dune film. I can't remember his name right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Skarsgård. He's, he's one of the many Skarsgårds. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. he's a good actor. Um, Soren uh, Skarsgård. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And and he does a very good job with the uh, Baron in, in Dune. But in Dune, they have uh, the tendency in the movies to describe this or that popular at that time fad science term for it. When when the actually one being discussed is a forty year space drive, but then other bits of the same book or movie, depending on which version we're looking at, they will then describe it as something more like a warm hole. So like these are uh, very different. different things. It's like saying, How'd you enjoy your train trip in there? Oh, it was great, except we had all that turbulence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so different I'm gonna try to describe uh, a wormhole um using a reference from uh, a movie that I saw at the age of eight, which I really should not have. Um 1997's 
wonderful hit film starring Lawrence Fishburne and Sam O'Neill, also called Event Horizon, um, where (laughs) they figure out how to bend space time and immediately open a portal to hell, basically. Um, Cool. It's a very scary. It's a great. It's a great, terrible movie. It's the worst, best movie. Um, How does this work, Tristan? Teach me. How do I make a portal to hell? So if you to make a portal to hell, uh, uh, you have to take Isaac. I feel like you should pre-roll your eyes on this one. So you take your (laughs) average piece of paper. Uh And if you want to get from point A to point B on a piece of paper, you're going to have to go on this line. That takes so long. But what if you were able to punch a hole through the paper with a pencil and then fold the paper, you could get from point A to point B instantaneously. And then if you think about that, that's two dimensional. Mm -hmm. So if you mention it in three dimensions, if we can fold space... Yeah. Where two different points that are far away from each other managed to touch mm-hmm. like like okay. like uh like ET, then they can you can theoretically do that and you would have uh, basically two very distant points in space be existing next to each other and then through the magic of negative matter or whatever uh be able to go from one to the other if you could just figure out how to make something so powerful that it could bend yeah. the very fabric of space itself. Yes. Okay. Well, and this is, and, and that's actually a very critical bit there. Something people tend to miss about a lot of wormhole theory is when we're first discussing, and this isn't for folks who know that not including a visceral wormhole, which comes later. Um, there are many different types of wormholes, and one of those is what you described, but it's not the Einstein Rosenbridge one. Um, it, it took so much mass to require, like entire, you know, multiple stellar masses worth of these things. So, like, oh, I want a wormhole between star systems. Fine, find me a few, bi- you know, extra million random stars, and we'll build your bridge network. Um, but, that one there with a folding space one, I usually just call that space folding. That's what they do in Dune Theory too. That is yeah. an example. There are multiple types of wormholes, right? and so we hear examples and explanations of one or another. They're not all the same. You know, that's just the classic Einstein one. In that one, though, like we call it a wormhole originally because they used the example of an apple that a worm is going through, but think instead of a balloon. And we live on the surface of this two-dimensional balloon, which again, three dimensions, four dimensions, etc. If you take your finger and poke them into two spots and put them together, you yeah. push that balloon until they touch. But if I and, and I can go ahead and poke that hole at that point in time, and I'm, I can tie those bits together. Now, if I actually travel through there, I actually have to go down that hole into that balloon and out the other side. There's still a lot of material to go through there. Wormholes yeah. of this type are not instantaneous. They can have very long travel times in fact in some cases they have a longer travel time than the uh let's say going the long way around does right so as the crow that's flies. more the case of what's going yeah. on to do the kind that people like think of the the paper 41 the 40 space one that's supposed to be instantaneous that's what we tend to see in these things uh or maybe the you know slow down stargate version where it's not quite instantaneous but it takes a couple of seconds not weeks mm-hmm. which is what like even your best normal woman will do with your good amount of you know solar masses um, for that, you need an extra dimension that you're bending them in. You're not bending the space time that you're at in the classic sense, like that piece of paper. I'm bending that, but topologically, right on that sheet of paper where the text's at, nothing's happened there. Mm-hmm. If I take a map of the planet and bend it in half and poke two holes through, on that map, nothing's rearranged. You still can travel the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing's changed. But you didn't bend it in two dimensions, you bent it in three. You bent it in that extra dimension, that's where you bent it at. So in order to do that kind of space folding, which is totally allowable, right, mm-hmm. in theory, you actually have to have a fourth dimension that you're bending things through. I don't mean yeah. time, an extra physical dimension that you have bend this piece of paper or map in, okay. this three-dimensional map. 
Um, and then how you actually bore that hole in might not be important enough. You're just touching them, right? Just got two pieces of paper touching doesn't necessarily mean there's material traveling through that, which is assuming the ink might let you, you know, soak the other page. Oh. But how do you bend that? It took energy to bend that piece of paper. Yeah. It took a lot of energy to bend that piece of paper. Yeah. With that paper has, right? So, you know, that's a question of how much energy does it take to do this? And the same for a lot of fashion light systems. That people discuss, they forget that energy cost that you know that side effect. The closer and closer you get to the speed of light, the more and more energy it takes to accelerate just a little bit more. It's the example I used last time of a wheelbarrow, that's your basic ship or rest mass. And every time you get a little bit faster, you have to put a little bit more in that wheelbarrow so that every extra foot, every extra mile per hour, whatever it is, costs you more mass than the last time. You keep mm. adding more and more until theoretically it stacks to the moon and back, right? That doesn't really work out practically. You can only go so mm. fast. But if you're going faster than the speed of light on paper, which mm. is allowable on paper, it's not like you lost the ability to you know, have to use energy for that. It's not like these things don't have a huge energy requirement. And it comes to that question of, do you actually want to travel that fast that you're going to pay that electric bill? Is it worth mm. getting there 10 times faster or it costs you a billion times more energy? And in some cases, it might be. Who cares if it costs you a billion times as much energy to try and send one single you know, message that's uh, five characters long or something like that, you know, your, your codes, um, mm. which is something they play around with, like the Battletech setting allows their hyperspace generators are basically like a mod bodum. It can send like uh, you know, a couple kilobytes for an entire right. planet to another planet system, which, you know, it sounds, wow, you can never send videos that way. You send them the hard way on like a spaceship, carrying them on a hard drive. But mm-hmm. I'd be happy to be able to do one kilobyte information between us and Alpha Centauri instantaneously because that's all you need for the big news items. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And once they get 5G, then it'll be much faster. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but then the, then you're giving them COVID and we don't want to spread COVID oh, to no. Alpha Centauri. Um, you get COVID so, from 5G. <laughs> I was one of the very early conspiracies about uh, COVID. Yeah. I don't um, need to I've already talked about it on the podcast, but the general theory is that the, that COVID is not a disease it, or not a virus. It is the side effect of being exposed to the 5G rays, basically. Yeah, you know, we were telling people, it's like your Wi-Fi signal uses the same frequency as your microwave oven does. It's one thing that's allowed for that. And it's not the least bit harmful right, in of itself. But the, you think that's one of those things people don't really want to get stuck in their head is like, well, it's safe just like your microwave. It's like, well, I don't want to be in my microwave. It's like, well, yeah, but your microwave's got reflective size that bounce the signal around, you know, a billion times a second. And that's why you can, you know, actually heat food with it because normally a microwave will go right through pretty much anything. Right. But it has a, you know, a decent chance of being absorbed if it bounces around a billion times. It's very easy to reflect, but... <laughs> We mean, we're we're, yeah. we're not too far like existing technology and stuff that's being developed like by startups right now that could be like Ooh. a thing in the next decade or so will involve uh harvesting solar power from orbit and sending oh, it yeah. down to the Space earth via microwaves yeah. so and that's going to have to go through lots of things or also we're yeah. going to have a lot of like you know well-cooked birds falling out of the sky or something but delicious <laughs> um but, I think so, the ocean limit's 100 watts per meter, but we actually have an episode that talks about that. There's a at the conference I'm co-hosting next month uh, down in Frisco, Texas, for the International Space Development Conference. Give me a quick plug. Um, that's going to be one of the entire tracks that we're discussing in space-based solo, and I love that as a Kickstarter because like there's only so many things you can do in space that make money back here on Earth, which is what you need. And hmm. power transmissions, what are those? You could say, okay, send them gold to platinum or we send home power. And either one of those, that's a trillion dollar energy sector, you know, that you could potentially be doing in space oh, yeah. that can then fund your space expansion. Mm-hmm. Well, you so were talking about beforehand as well. Sorry, Tristan. You were talking about no, before, no, go ahead. you were talking about before we started recording about how there's a place that rains diamonds. That feels like it could be pretty uh it could be valuable until it immediately becomes not valuable because <laughs> we have so many. <laughs> 
The yeah, problem, I though, is that diamonds, it's a completely different story because diamonds are cheap. We can make them artificially. Yeah. The yeah. only th- reason they're expensive is because the they've convinced people that digging them out of the earth is somehow is cooler. Cooler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're yeah. better when they're dug out of the earth. And so that's why a bunch of uh, child soldiers need to die in like Congo or something. Man. Um, well, you can make them in a microwave, an industrial microwave in particular. Yeah. Uh, but like um, Odyssey Clark, he did 2001. It is 2016. One third book in that series, they have an expedition goes out to see Jupiter and proves the idea that there is a giant diamond in Jupiter's core, and um, which is probably not the case, but was working theory at the time. And there's a bunch of people back home who are waiting for that prediction so they can short sell the stocks because, of course, people really dropped a bunch of stock on the beyond on um, diamonds, mm. and then when they realized they'd be trying to mine out a, a diamond from another planet's core, realized, oh wait a minute, it's it's not valueless yet, so they bought up a bunch of it at the same time. Uh, <laughs> Mm. In, uh, in but, recent in, news, De Beers has bought the planet Jupiter. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, uh, so Jupiter might not be the best option for it, but we think right now, Uran, and again, this could change any time, Uranus and Neptune, we think it might actually rain diamonds there. And, you know, Those are now not considered gas giants, they are ice giants, and possibly Hycean planets insofar as they have a lot of things that own hydrogen and helium on them. And it might mm. be that they rain diamonds, and that's cool. terrifyingly cool. It's very cool. <laughs> Feels gonna, like it hurts. What's it called? We're going to be in a future where several planets in our solar system are owned by De Beers, and they're going to find a way to also send, like, what's it called? Like, Congolese children to, like, Yikes. Uranus to, uh, to collect it. All right, because wormholes. De Beers is a slightly evil corporation. <laughs> yeah. And by slightly, I mean extremely. Slightly. Very. <laughs> This this podcast this episode of It's Probably Not Aliens is brought to you by De Beers. De Beers, <laughs> we're evil and we know it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, where were we? Are we allowed to do balls. that? Is that allowed? Can we take that through legal? Um, <laughs> my darling, I'm giving you this diamond as a symbol of my love, and so you can remember as we start a family. Just think of all the children who helped bring you these diamonds. Oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah, just clean the blood off that real quick. Yeah. Um, Interesting. We can do, we can, we can, that runs, they're the ones who sponsored us. Of course we're allowed to yeah. do it. If we weren't I, sponsored by De Beers, then um, that would be uh, assassinated tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Especially because um, I am from a Canada. I am from I am from a Canada. I am from a country that is one of those diamond producers where we send young men up to the Arctic to mine diamonds for six months, and then we send them back with uh, lots of money and a heroin addiction. So um, yeah, big problem here. Um, but wormholes. But wormholes. Um, so so the, so the, yeah, uh, wormholes. Uh, that that's they're one they're one of the two main. The reason why there's so much interest in wormholes is because they're one of the two main cheat codes for getting around Einsteinian physics to be able to do superluminal yeah. travel. Um, the other one being, um, which I think we've also, I feel like, Isaac, you also have some hmm things about it. The the famous Alcubierre uh, warp drive thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that one's, I mean, again, I was pointing out, I was like, well, this could walk out. Uh, Sonny White said so. And his job is to like check and see if these things are vaguely plausible over at uh, Eagle Walks. But uh, Alcubio, you know, introduces idea with the caveat: this was a fun mathematical thing to do a paper on for kicks. I don't, you know, I don't believe this either. Obviously, none of us think this would work. But the idea of the Alcubio drive is: we know that you can condense space in front of you. That's great, right? Then you can do that, and you would then fall down towards that condensed thing in front of you. And on the back end, you have expanding space behind you. 
And this isn't the first idea that had used that one. There was another one in the past that said, if we put some negative matter behind your ship and some positive matter on the front of your ship, the way that works out is the positive matter will pull the negative towards you, while the negative will push the positive away from you. And this is exactly what it sounds like, a perpetual motion machine. And it will fall towards your destination the whole way. And it works out on paper. And I like to use this example because it's just one of those reasons, like, well, we think negative matter exists. Like, well, it works on paper. But Mm -hmm. do you see any physical evidence why that would happen? And then you say, let's take the wider view of this. Let's say you can make these perpetual motion machines, these warp drives. So right now, we can really only discuss aliens inside our galaxy or some areas nearby it. You say, well, that's a lot of space. Well, no, it's it's not. It's, it's like saying the universe, just the observable universe we see being this planet, our galaxy is not much bigger than a grain of, of sand. Right? It's a very small area. Yeah. And we really only have to worry about the beach nearby us that was where aliens could come from, the other supercluster we were in, as it were, mm-hmm. this, this life's large beach. If you throw in faster light technology, you now suddenly have to ask yourself, especially it's a perpetual motion machine too for huge industrial fueling of the, your economies. Where are these guys? If yeah. they have the entire plant to come from and not just this beach. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If they can they, get they can here go, yeah. at any moment, nearly yeah. instantaneously, where it are they? Let's do this. The neighboring, you know, neighboring superclusters, it's possible, especially you got an earlier start when the universe is a bit smaller. But for the rest of it, 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 it only it would take is one out of the billions upon billions of plants in the galaxies uh, in, in, the, in the observable universe and the unobservable universe beyond that, which is even bigger. Only one of these places has to rise, have life, and invent this technology to rapidly, and I mean in less than a million years, colonize the entire universe. Do you, I mean... And the universe is like one a million years old. Do you think... I heard from a reputable, a guy named uh, Kurt Cam... No, wait, not Kurt Cameron. The guy named... The, there's a guy with a banana on YouTube who mm-hmm. told me that it was about 3,000... Yeah. Kurt Cameron <laughs> does the banana thing, so you might be is onto Kurt something. Cameron? I always think that's an actor. He is an actor, but he does the banana thing, too. Oh, oh. We're talking Kurt Cameron from the old uh, Growing Pains, yeah. Yeah, that was a good show in the 80s. I, mean, I, I did I, not know that Kurt Cameron was the young Earth creationist banana guy. Is he? He's, he's the at young... least one of them. I've seen him do the talk about the banana. Yeah. What's the talk about the banana? The banana this. thing, and this is this is my, I, I hope it's the same thing, but the banana thing from my- Oh, it's under, Kurt my, Cameron. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, what did you okay. think it was? I thought it was Kurt Cameron. No, Kirk with the K. Kirk. The banana thing is this idea that like, um, it's the, a banana is proof of intelligent design, I guess, because of the way that uh, when you hold it, it like forms per- like the ridges form perfectly to the knuckles in your hand. It it has appeal to like so you can unwrap it. It's like all this stuff about how like the banana is the perfect human shaped food human, and it's just like and that's proof of um, I guess intelligent design to which was always baffling to me as I grew up in in a religious place because like. What, how would you explain all of the other food? Like you have, (laughs) you have one that fits perfectly in your hand. You're throwing out all of the other foods. To, to make your point. God intended humans to eat nothing but bananas. That is that yeah. is what I'm learning. We were just we were banana be, well, I, What I found over the years is that the examples for both uh, intelligent design and evolution are almost always really bad ones. Because you say, well, tell me how you think it works out. And someone say, well, right, well, here's how evolution works. And then they will, they will unintentionally give you a perfect example of intelligent design as the example. Like, look at this car and how it improved over the years. Like, that's, that's not how evolution works at all. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's to be a space where people just put very bad analogies a lot of times. Intelligent but. design shows
shows how well human beings are structured. That's we're why all of us have bad backs by the time we're 37. We do want to be careful though on that because like, we'll hit something like simulation hypothesis, and that's basically intelligent design too. Nothing in physics actually tells us that that, that is wrong. It just says the evidence says the universe appears to be 13.7 billion years old. And that could be go. like, we could easily you know, find out that the universe popped out of somebody else's wormhole in a higher layer of reality. That, that, yeah. is, that is high on the list of considered plausible scenarios at this point. Also, so, I, don't wanna, I don't want to belabor the point about bananas, but isn't mm-hmm. it a thing where an entire species of banana went extinct because they're all like so genetically identical that like one disease wiped out a t- like an entire thing of bananas and now bananas... Yes. Now banana flavor, like the banana flavoring of candy is reminiscent of those old bananas that don't exist anymore, which is, is why really they don't, don't taste, taste like bananas. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can, I, I, can, I, I, I know a little bit about this. So here's, here's the, basically the thing is that uh, bananas are a kind of fruit. Okay, that was, well, yeah, bananas, okay, so yeah, we got okay. that part. Yeah, I think we're all, <laughs> we're gonna bananas, in wow, bananas really in the wild. Wow, you really do know a lot about this, don't yeah. you, Tristan? <laughs> bananas in the wild have seeds. So they're, and they're not super fun to eat. They are eaten in Africa and a lot of like, you know, places where bananas grow in the wild, but the kind of banana that we eat are a seedless varietal of banana. And as we all know about seedless varieties of anything is that you don't have seeds to grow more right, of them. You can't so, just plant them again. Yeah. yeah so they're so, all clones. They're so what all it turns like, out is, is that the banana actually is an example of intelligent design. Yeah. Because bananas but are not, essentially all, <laughs> yeah, they're all grafted. Like all bananas are clones of like the like, white, like, the carrots, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that there was a type of banana, and I'm trying to um, I'm trying to remember the name of them. Um, I think oh, they yeah, were Michel ones. The Gros oh. Michel banana was the uh, dominant type of banana until the 1950s, and because they were all genetically identical, there was this fungus that affected them and almost wiped them out. And so, what we have, I think, is called the Cavendish banana. Um, I'll be let honest. Just, let me just uh, a bit of an I, upgrade. I, I don't want to be talking about bananas on the corrections episode, so. <laughs> Well, while he's um, looking it up, we discuss yeah. radiation as measured in the banana dosage. Yeah, the yeah. Cavendish <laughs> banana is the one that we have today, and but uh, the artificial flavoring that we associate with banana is from the Gros Michel banana, and they're not extinct, but they're very rare, and they're pretty expensive to get your hands on. Um, but yeah, um, that, yeah. Is the, that is the bananas in the wormhole episode. Um, yeah, that really explains why that the candy always tastes like a really bad wormhole. example of candy. I mean, I never thought banana candy tastes least but like a banana, but... I think this is one of those examples, though, of of when we think about the logic of of how you could have a universe come into existence in the first place. Kind of going back to the wormholes idea. Thank you. Is that <laughs> with a banana is like a wormhole? Go. <laughs> <laughs> so how bananas are like a wormhole? If you were doing the example we think of, where you have the black holes naturally forming, you know, more black holes, and that's how you the natural universes is a, you know you have constant new big bangs coming out of these naturally occurring black holes. We said that's a good idea, but you're still more likely to be coming from one that somebody made going kind of the simulation hypothesis or totals all the way down, you know, computers all the way up idea, because all it takes is one universe where life like us could arise, figure out how to make these artificial, you know, figure out that's how universes got made and then start doing it intentionally. And the done intentionally thing is going to naturally evolve <laughs> into a situation where they're producing way more of them than would naturally occur in other universe lines, thus resulting in more and more universes that were being made by civilizations as opposed to uh, naturally occurring. Now, I've run virtual machines on my computer before, mm-hmm. and I got to say, you do that a few times, things stop working very well. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, and there was the one is like, um, could you have a bigger universe inside a simulated one? And the answer was actually yes. There's nothing stopping you from having a bigger simulated universe than the simulating one itself. It's just that it's going to be smaller in certain other respects. Either time runs slower there, or the resolution is lower. You know, it's 15 billion light years across, but a pixel is a light year. You know? I have um, some patch suggestions for the devs of this universe, if that is the case. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some feedback I could file. And you can get layers like that, but it is... One of those topics say, if you have these wormholes, do they go to other universes? And the most likely scenario for wormholes being a real thing is that they would be to other universes, not our own. And again, that comes back to that, how you do time travel inside your own universe situation with a wormhole. Do we want to run off in that direction or the time sure. travel? Okay. So the, the people say, well, how do I get time travel with all these things? And one thing about the Alcubio warp drive and someone's like that is they don't cause time travel paradoxes. But with wormholes, what happens is I start off by making two wormhole mouse next to each other. The idea being that I, I have to make them together and, and drag them apart. Otherwise, mm. I'm standing, stabbing holes in the universe and hoping they don't come out in the middle of a star or something, um, which where well, gravity sort is a lot more likely. But I make these two wormhole mouse open to each other. And right now, if I put a clock next to each one, they're running the same speed, right? Mm -hmm. They're they both saying today is January, well, they're, they're April 27, 2023, right? Yeah. And so I take one of these wormhole mounts and I put it in orbit of Earth. It's just sitting there, always fine. There's a little bit of time dilation from orbiting, but not much. Now I take the other one, I get myself up to 86% of light speed, which is about when time is running half its normal speed. And so I get to Alpha Centauri, you know, and about five years later. But for me, it's it's been like three or whatever it is you know so now it's the year 2026 at, at that location back here at earth it's still you know it's it's been five years it's 2028 when they arrived on those clocks all right so i pop out there and i pop back through there's no problem yet now i take that wormhole mouth though that's at alpha centauri and i come back and the clock on the end of it is still says oh it's been another three years but it's now the year 2034 when it shows up as opposed to you know the six years that's about on that clock so somebody goes in the mouth and they come out back six years earlier you know they, the mm. time dilation is carried on the mouth of that wormhole so you emerge you go in one mouth pop out the other right next to it again and time there on that clock is not progressed so unless there's some unknown factor that's making you catch up with that time which to the best of our knowledge and experimentation there would not be um and we have actually done a lot of experimentation on general relativity you now have a time travel one and this is one that begins only to the moment you create the original device right you can't use it to hop back and prevent the wormhole being made or kill hitler it's just going to go back to whenever the wormhole was made and that dilation yes but this lets you basically make a little ramp that lets you do a closed curve inside that and we just something like that with uh einstein oh. and asimov's classic book uh end of eternity where they can only do time travel to uh after they made the original device you know i think yeah, I remember we, I isaac think, um you yeah. live in a you live in ohio mm -hmm. and ohio is the state where there is that that real crank philosophy or uh um, what's it called physics professor who's trying to invent a time machine to save his dad or something yep. <laughs> <laughs> we i think the very that, first episode <laughs> we had you on was about time travel and we 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 touched on this a little bit too and now yeah, I'm, we'll have now to I'm film starting that to understand why why this uh <laughs> why this happened well the audience doesn't know is that episode hasn't been made yet no, <laughs> no. we're recording that after this <laughs> mm-hmm but those kind of paradoxes is what are inevitable with almost every FTL system that you could make inside that goes from this part of the universe to another. Even go to a different universe, though, it probably shouldn't be an issue. If it doesn't matter if that universe is, it has a different calendar to begin with, presumably. So that's why there's a lot more room for wormholes or stargates to other universes uh, as opposed to inside our own. But that's still <laughs> awesome if you got that option. Yeah. You know? I want to go to the universe where we have hot dogs for fingers, personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but everything else is the same. But yeah, like that—that that, that is because I, I remember that the other uh, Isaac Arthur, uh, highly recommended Isaac Arthur video when having edibles is the one about what, like the Fermi paradox answer, which is that we just figure out how to colonize infinite versions yeah. of our own Earth, and we just decide to say nuts to going out to space, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's the easier one for that is—is—is is, is it just it makes so much more sense? Why colonize, you know, a, a dead and barren universe? And like there are probably plants that are easier to colonize than Venus or Mars, but these are things that you you spend generations trying to make them vaguely habitable, um, and by generations, like hundreds of them. Uh, or, or you could just open a gateway to a copy of Earth in which that first intelligent primate uh, ate the wrong type of fruit and fell over dead, and so it hasn't arrived yet here. Or, you know, like where the dinosaurs got wiped out a little bit harder or nothing's yet quite gotten back that level. Any little small situation, that'd be that one where the plague hit back in, I don't know, 11-something BC and everybody died off instead or something. And, you know, that's that's the options. There's like virtually infinite number of these. There's so many that the number would, if written out naturally, cause a black hole to collapse on the paper you wrote it on. There's so many options like that. There's so many more, if the mini wars idea is true, then there are plants even in this universe of which there are billions and billions so skip that and go for your trillions upon trillions upon quintillions but i could do this for the rest of the episode and still not hit that number but still a finite one i said that's a pretty good for me paradox solution is why you don't see aliens out there because why bother at most they might leave on some big powerful beacon that says by the way here's how you do this yeah, <laughs> yeah that'd be pretty FYI. cool um and if we even want to see aliens we can just go to the version of earth that has aliens on it but, and then you get with the teaching beacons the one issue as well well why you don't see these beacons a, a, a civilization that powerful should surely be able to run something like that we say well yeah we could run a teaching beacon too but if it's something that you tend to discover before you ever would actually really do space travel would we set up a teaching beacon to show people how to do the Pythagorean theorem? Yeah. You know, or like, here's like, well, they could have radio so they could hear us. We should send them a teaching beacon that explains how to do uh, the Apollo project. They say, well, is that really worth our effort when they're going to figure that out on their own in a century or two? And, and to be honest, we really don't care if they fail because there's so many civilizations out there that at worst we're removing the particularly unlucky or weak versions from the game, you know? <laughs> right, right. The start, we, we, what's it called? We made first contact with an alien civilization civilization and the first thing they did was assign us math homework yeah yeah actually that's the plot of contact never mind it basically is yeah and a great book and i love sagan but you know you think about that as like what's the real purpose of the aliens going here and we want to be careful of assuming that aliens are you know they're not likely to be monstrously evil but they're not likely to necessarily view things the same way we are. Like, you might have a species where the birth rate's 10 times higher naturally than ours is, and long before they could do anything like birth control, they just have this population bomb thing constantly going on. Their solution was, once everyone finishes kindergarten, the A students are passed on to first grade and treated like humans, and everybody else is dealt with. And mm. that's just how they control their population. And that might be like, well, that sounds so insanely evil but at the same time they might not they, they just might not they go otherwise normal the universe out there might be very darwinian very nasty yeah, and so those aliens are looking just, at us like have you heard what they do for diamonds yeah, have you heard yes. what they do for diamonds they're Should everywhere they capitalism on this planet it's wild <laughs> well it's they the give you a number space, yeah. they give you imaginary number and it tells you whether or not you can have food it's wild yeah well, it's like it's the space elves thing in general, the kind of trope of the very nice and enlightened aliens. And when they actually, when you have sci-fi that has that character type uh, in it for more than a few episodes, people start saying, hey, wait a minute, these guys are kind of dicks, or they don't make much sense because mm-hmm. they seem to be withholding technology that would be really helpful for no other reason than to yeah, keep it. And I say, well, yeah, that seems so unrealistic, but at the same time, that actually is kind of That's... realistic. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. meet the model of 
highly enlightened, kind aliens. It's more like slightly selfish pricks, which when you think about it, if they came off the Darwinian system, is, is pretty much your best option, right? We are not selfish as a species. We are actually very generous compared to most things in the animal kingdom, and we're still pricks. So why would we be assuming yeah. that uh, you know, aliens out there are all incredibly kind, generous, and benevolent in every respect? You know? Yeah, like I would say, if you are uh, if you are representative of any other species on this planet that's not us, you, your conclusion would be that we're kind of pricks. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, so, so on the wormhole thing. Uh, so, yeah, basically, they could be if they if they were to exist, uh, they would be another. They would be a uh, faster than light, also time travel thing, which again is like another case where it's whether or not they exist is still theoretical. Um, there are theories that they exist as. Um, that they like they end like they come in through the quantum foam and mm-hmm. that they're just sort of like they're oh. there they quickly like basically pop in and out of existence yep i think quantum foam is the the sort of colloquial term for what you've been talking about about just how like there's like energy and matter that just pops in and out of existence right, uh, right. all the time at the, uh, the i mean and there are a few different variations of that too but the idea being that there's always things that are partially existing for a brief moment which sounds really counterintuitive but really it, it turns out all macroscopic universe is the counterintuitive one, but it's what we're used to. Mm-hmm. There are things popping in our existence constantly for a briefest of moments, the tiniest little editing area, you know, as it were, the universe. And um, because there's, they're only living for a fraction of a second, but there's so many of them constantly in and out, it becomes a density, a localized density. It's not quite a vacuum. And I think the analogy I used before on that was um, if you're going down a freeway, there's always cars passing through. Nobody actually lives on that stretch of freeway, but there's always cars. There's always a population. And that's what mm. these are. They're in and out. Same for any mm. photons passing through the area, like cosmic microwave background radiation. So there's a false vacuum state that we're in where there's always some stuff. It's, 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 the there there's the um this uninhabited piece of desert that has people traveling through it that don't really live there but the population density has results is still one in a hundred you know square miles and that's the quantum foam situation where it's really really dense it's more like the idea that um everything that we think of as these stable macroscopic particles could almost be thought of as more like the broken debris that sticks around not doing its job mm. and that's oh. what the macroscopic universe is built on and and I'm and this is sort of the basis for why some people believe in like many worlds things because this is like matter moving in and out of those different universes or that's only one of the things that's been proposed too. Um, and, and again, things like uh, brain theory get even more complex with that, where we're more like the upper surface membrane of much bigger universes that uh, you know are kind of constantly colliding and setting off big bangs too. But um, you know, it's one of the things of what's the experimental evidence backing this up. And as an example, this vacuum energy we talk about, we have this kind of this catastrophe situation where what we predict and what we experimentally find are off a little bit. And say, oh, well, how much are they off by? 120 orders of magnitude, which is the difference between the smallest atom in this universe and the entire observable universe. That's how much they, they disagree with to predictive theories on this. So, mm. And that, that is why we say the quantum gravity thing, that they get trying to mesh the quantum gravity problem. That's that error that makes that so hard and so important to do. It's like, all well, right, all right, you drafted me. The other. <laughs> You've convinced me. I'm going to make a hack at it. I'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> give myself a six pack of uh, Red Bull and then I'll hash We just needed Tristan to tackle it. <laughs> I I almost knew quadratic equations. I think I can get this. Um, All right. So, so, yeah, we're yeah, at like, it. Uh, we're, we're, we, need to, we need to do things. Um, so, um, yeah, so they basically, the idea is that if they were to exist, they would look like little spheres. Uh, and, yeah. and, um, 
that is the main the main thing. So the, I wanted to talk though a little bit about how um, there's been some recent advances on the theory of wormholes or potential future oh, wow. wormhole wow, developments. You did it already, Tristan. That's yeah. awesome. What have um, you uh, What have you What have you found? So apparently there was in uh, China a bunch of astrophysicists have come to, have published a new journal that uh, article that suggests that we might have a new way to detect them if they do exist out in space, and that is uh, essentially trying to figure out the gravitational lensing effect that would be created that would be different from black holes that wormholes would have specifically Mm -hmm. magnifying light up to about a hundred thousand times its normal brightness oh and so that could lead to a model of us actually discovering wild wormholes if they do exist Okay. Yeah, they are not the same as a black hole. And as an example, if you, well, if you have a black hole and you feed it negative matter, you can turn it into a wormhole. If you have a wormhole and you feed it regular matter, you can turn it into a black hole. And that's another one of the limitations on your classic wormhole is that we think that if you add matter to them, they begin to become unstable. Oh. And the question is, is it just a little bit of matter or is it, you know, do you have to add as a equal amount of matter or not? And that's... Yeah. Another reason why big traversable ones would probably need to have a vast amount of like stars worth of mass, not, you know, planets or asteroids worth of masses. You're okay. Your ship went in there and it destabilized and destroyed it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and the second advancement might actually give us some answers on this. Maybe. <laughs> I feel okay. like there's been an answer to all of this uh, coming around the corner for ages, but um, it's a f- term called counterportation. Uh, mm-hmm. And this came out from the work of a physicist at the University of Bristol uh, by the name of Hatim Salih, um, who has uh, invented a computing scheme called counterportation that theoretically could create a wormhole in a lab. It's a type of teleportation that uh, maybe you'd be able to explain a type of teleportation without any detectable information carriers traveling across. So that basically it just is spooky action at a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so okay. uh, you'd be able to reconstitute a small object across space without the particles crossing, which provides a practical blueprint for creating a wormhole in the lab that bridges space. It sidesteps the major problem of scaling up quantum computing prototypes and uses the basic laws of physics to reconstitute a small object across space without uh, particles crossing. And I find this is very interesting because of the way that it says it works. It's inspired by interaction free measurement and the Zeno effect. So there's a whole idea in quantum mechanics that you can uh that like by measuring things you are collapsing a waveform mm-hmm. and the yeah. idea is that you might be able to do quantum teleport or this kind of like wormhole teleportation thing by uh measuring it frequently enough in respect to some chosen measurement setting <laughs> so you just like constantly measure it i i'm yeah i mean without going into the the various versions of schrodinger's cat and the bigger ones wagner's friend you have this situation where you say, well, if you measure it, we should rephrase that as it's currently our belief that any action at all that involves a particle is collapsing its waveform. Mm-hmm. Measurement is one example of that. That's debatable because the only way we can ever check this is when we measure it. Right. And so it's kind of a situation that you can never actually know if this stuff only happens when a conscious observer is doing it because mm. you always have to use a conscious observer to check. But right. and How that's can you actually check without interacting with right. it. Right. And, and, yeah. and so we believe, uh, though we cannot prove and we'll never be able to prove, that these things are being collapsed every time they interact in any fashion whatsoever. But there are these discrete states in quantum. The more, and they're always complementary or supplementary things, but they are unique together. You got momentum and speed. The more accurate you know something's momentum, the less accurate its speed. So if I measure something's momentum very accurate, sorry, its position, excuse me, momentum 
and position. The more accurately I measure something's momentum, the less certain I am about its speed. And that's how a teleportation can take place in that variety. You also have the one that's more the quantum film thing, which is energy and time are linked. The more energy something has, the tinier piece of time can be uncertain about it. So something very powerful that pops up in terms of mass or energy has a very short timeline it can exist for. Vice versa, something very, very, very weak can exist for potentially very long periods of time. And well, you might say, well, if these things really exist for a long period of time, a measurable period of time, wouldn't we expect to see a constant quantum background radiation of particles of this very long-lived but weak variety? And so those are the kind of situations where we look at that experimental evidence. With all the teleportation things, though, this happens at the quantum scale because it's think of it more like pixelization. If I'm on a 100 by 100 pixel map, I can't be halfway between two of those pixels. I must be either an A or B. And that's kind of how the teleportation is working. If you're making that discrete space between them big enough, then they have to be either A or B, then it's teleporting over that distance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This, so this really f- works. So. This Zeno effect is like you measure it enough times that it slows down its time evolution. <sighs> Good God, I'm not sure if I can actually explain that one, right? Because I'm trying to think my way through on that. I don't know that one well enough to explain it. Okay, that's that's all good. <laughs> um, so if this theoretically works, and I mean, we can talk, we can probably maybe maybe Hatim Sali will uh, will find an answer at some point. But it would be a practical blueprint for creating a wormhole that bridges space and could be used to explore the universe's inner workings. And now at uh, Bristol, Oxford, and York, this is being talked about in order to basically build this in a lab. The experiment can reveal the underlying quantum nature of our classical world, showing that entirely separate quantum particles can be correlated without ever interacting, and be used as a testbed for rival physical theories, including those of quantum gravity and the existence of higher dimensions. Um, this seems like a very like big if true type statement. <laughs> if you can if you can do this stuff without actually having to entangle the particles, then in theory, you could have two particles that one night next to each other get entangled in the first place that you could then for fact fact of a word entangle and that, that would definitely allow that spooky action of distance if true. Thus, I'm going to assume it will not walk because I don't think you'd ever actually make that walk. And then again, that's kind of the backwards calculation on that saying, by deduction, if anyone ever made this system walk, we would already know about it. So, mm. <laughs> But uh, in terms of like, does this walk on paper? If if that works out to be true, then yes, it would. Kind of same thing for a warm horse or warp drive. It walks on paper. Give me experimental proof that it actually works in the real universe and I'll believe it because in the meantime, if it works on paper and it works in reality, we're all examples of it already working, you know? Yeah. Well, mm. I guess the like, thing here is that basically what this person said is uh, the paper puts out a practical way for making something that would be able to test this. Mm-hmm. And I guess these people, and I, if I recall correctly, um, Oxford's like one of the big QM facilities. I, th- I mean, Oxford's just like one of the big universities. Yeah, Oxford's but- one of the big ones. For, it's, it's like MIT or Harvard. But that, that is, I mean, you know, I love A.V. Loeb. He's a great scientist, a brilliant man. But just because he says something doesn't necessarily make it true. He's, he's pretty firm, for instance, on the idea that that uh, one asteroid is an alien spaceship. And that's true of a lot of other physicists, too. Like Stephen Hawking often made bad calls. So is Penrose. They're brilliant. And they know this stuff way better than I do, but they're not ever 100% right. They are trying to do theory mm-hmm. on the edge of, of, of what we know. That means you're wrong a lot more than you're right. And with something like this, it's someone saying, here is a possible experiment we could do that would test this if it works. I say, okay, good. Now we have to run the experiment. Because now that we've designed one, that's great. And the problem with a lot of things like string theory is we can't even design an experiment that would prove them. Mm. Uh, but if you can come up with a design, like I remember one that had been suggested, if you had something that had like a rough Jupiter mass of, of very carefully arranged matters, you know, hundreds of times what the Earth is, you might be able to use this to find one piece, a detector that big might be able to find one piece of this particular exotic matter they were discussing. 
Oh, easy. And so I say, well, that's great. That's an experiment that would work. So it advances because you're going to say, I have proposed a falsifiable technique for this. Like, that's great. Now it's in the realm of science. Mm-hmm. You still have to actually go do that science, but at least you can say, this isn't just you anymore. This is a scientific concept. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking here. Uh, so Hatim Sali is, uh, he is the founder of a firm called Dot Quantum. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one of the co-founders of Dot Quantum and is also just get, uh, is and, and yeah, his most recent publication on his list is the laws, the laws of nature do not prohibit counterfactual communication, which is, I believe what you were just talking about. I think so, yeah. so this guy's, uh, uh, part of like a university slash public private, basically startup, uh, mm-hmm. trying to do advancements in quantum computing. And if there was anywhere where there was going to be a breakthrough on that, it would be that because quantum computing is where all of the money is being pushed into. Yeah. And I do want to emphasize, I basically just got done saying, I don't think this is ever going to work, but it's things like Alcubio. So you say, well, this seems kind of out there. People might not believe that. And it's like, yeah, but nobody thought of him as fringe for releasing that. This was a fascinating idea and a good bit of theory and it was worth checking into. So he wrote a paper on it. I mean, love the paper because, well, maybe Star Trek can be real, but none of us thought it was very likely to be true. Same for this. I don't expect it to pan out, but that doesn't mean it's not a good thing to research into. Um, I feel like if it is turn out, if it does turn out to pan out, I feel like there will be nobody on Earth who would be happier than Isaac Arthur. I would be mm-hmm. thrilled because it would, well, I actually... A little bit terrified too, because anything that starts saying this becomes a much, like anything that becomes a much better way of generating power than something like fusion uh, or black hole, anything that's much better at letting you travel than light speed or less, always worries me that it's one of those things where you flip it on and becomes the automatic self destruct switch. Because if it if it did walk, I just I'm wondering where all the people all of that had it walking originally. Yeah, they, it makes <laughs> if we figure out if we figure out faster than light travel or like uh like very very efficient energy. Um, Fermi's paradox gets a lot. It gets scarier yeah. the closer we ever get to doing those things. Same, basically, before you flip the switch, be, and I think it's why there, there are so many good stories on that that have kind of got that Lovecraftian feel going on. Is because when you think about that, when you simply you know, open that that Pandora's box of infinite cheap energy or you know superluminal travel you start needing to say well could this possibly be a trap or a trick or a false path because if this really works and this universe really is that old where the hell is everybody else who's got this thing mm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But, uh, but that yeah that is that is the bleeding edge that is literally based on a paper that came out yeah. in like September of 2022 so um mm-hmm. there is that but basically yeah my brain I, hurts yeah while there might be while there might be wormholes in the future you definitely need more than just carving some holes in rocks or um a patch of desert in mexico oh, to right. make them that's possible. how we started this because they're ancient yeah. aliens i, and I been... guess was, i always try to give points to folks who are on the, on the fringe of side for not necessarily being completely crazy we don't know what an alien artifact for doing this would actually look like if they left one behind if they said well we're just going to leave these, these stone hands behind it could just be those things that the markers remind you that, the, that, that that's where the wormhole is at and if you had the ability to see in the fourth dimension you just walk up like oh there it is so like this is the point that everyone used to remind themselves but you flip on your 4D glasses, they're right there is the control interface. And Big Law is saying, yes, here's the map. Go ahead and push this button. And the folks leaving behind just didn't even record them that they needed to tell us how to do that because, to be honest, it, it didn't record them. They wanted the monkeys to play with their system that much. <laughs> mm, it's like the, I, uh, yeah. the fourth dimensional version of like putting something on a top shelf so that we don't play with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so th- uh, but anyways, um, if you want more of this kind of like riveting conversation deep into physics and exploring the science fiction stuff, um, 
is there a really great YouTube channel uh, slash Nebula uh, channel that I could go to, Isaac, to check it out? Why, uh, yes, you go to Science of Future with Isaac Althor, and uh, you will find our channel. We release a new episode every Thursday, and our Sci-Fi Sunday specials once a month on Sunday. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, a guest, this is, I think you are now the only guest who's been on three times. So awesome. I like to be what an honor. Surfer. Check in with Andrew. I'm not sure, but I think, yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's close. But uh, thank you so much again. We'll have links to all of Isaac's stuff in the show notes and everything. And uh, you can also follow the show for more updates at Probs Not Aliens on Twitter and Instagram. And oh, gosh, if I'm just like itching for some history videos uh tristan do you have any suggestions where people could find something uh the history channel uh is pretty good they have the Great show called channel. ancient aliens Fantas- um, we love it can't show. get enough of it uh but if you don't want the alien stuff you can go to step back the youtube channel that i run where i talk about why why the past is important for understanding why things happen in the world the way they do uh it's if if you are listening to this it should be i have a brand new video that's coming out i'm literally going to finish editing the video after we record this podcast Mm -hmm. Uh, so it should be out by the time the episode comes out if not something very bad went wrong uh about the cultural marxism conspiracy theory and the links between a uh a anti-semitic false text made in early 1900s russia and ron desantis trying to ban all the books from the libraries and the kids schools um oh wow okay um scott if i wanted to learn about i did this last week if i wanted to learn why scott's not happy no if i wanted to I'm doing other. Sure. I've got other stuff. I mean, my next. What's your video, next? What's your next thing? My next video is about YouTube plagiarism. I think so. If you want to learn about some recent drama, I'm a drama channel now, baby. Someone's been Illuminati on the internet. Uh oh. <laughs> um, and also just like the idea about plagiarism and creativity and 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 things like that. I just have a lot of thoughts. I'm just making off the cuff videos right now, and I hope people enjoy them. You can find that over on my YouTube channel, Nerd Sync N E R D S Y N C. Um, it's a good time. Go check it out. And thank you to everyone for writing reviews of, of this podcast on Apple podcast. I think we got some people who wrote in something on Spotify. I got like an email about that. I don't even know if that's a thing you can do, but anyway, thanks to everyone who did that. Uh, and thank you for telling your friends about the show and a very simple website to tell your friends about the show is probsnotaliens.com. It's got links to everything, uh, where you can listen to the show everywhere on the internet where you can hear our voices, uh, including a very special website called, uh, nebula.tv slash probably not aliens, where you can listen to episodes of this podcast one week early. So, Mm -hmm. and it's great and it helps support the show. So thank you so much to everyone for doing that. Um, until next time, my name is Scott Nicewander. I'm Tristan Johnson and the truth is out there. Mm, Probably. His brain hurts so bad from all the science we did. It's it's too much science.